0: Well, today is the Feast of Pentecost, which we sometimes call in um, Anglican circles. We sometimes call that Wit Sunday, White Sunday, uh, most likely a reference to the white baptismal garments that uh, many of the folks being baptized on Pentecost would have been, would have worn. And this is really one of the most important feast days of the Christian calendar. Liturgically, it's really right up there with Easter and Christmas. So in Holy Week and Easter, of course, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and the redemption of mankind by Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, On Christmas, we celebrate the Lord's incarnation when he became one of us, taking our nature upon him so that, again, he might redeem us. Well, on Pentecost, we celebrate the giving of the Holy Ghost to the church when God himself indwells and empowers us to continue the Lord's mission here on earth. Our fourth epistle reading from Acts chapter 2 relates the uh, first half of the story of the first new covenant Pentecost. And you'll notice that when the spirit fell on the apostles, the text says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Before Pentecost was a major feast day for Christians, it was already a major feast day for the Jews. These devout Jewish men from every nation that our text mentions, they were pilgrims visiting Jerusalem in observance of the Old Testament Feast of Weeks. Now, in the Old Testament, we find three major pilgrim feasts, these three major feast days when the Jewish men were to come to Jerusalem to bring sacrifices to the temple. And of course, before there was a temple in Jerusalem, they were doing this in the tabernacle, whether it was at Shiloh or wherever the tabernacle was set up at that given time. So these three pilgrim feasts were the Passover When the Israelites celebrated their redemption from slavery in Egypt and they celebrated the angel of death passing over them in the Exodus. And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths when the barley harvest was brought in and God's provision for and dwelling among his people in the wilderness was commemorated. And then we have the Feast of Weeks, which we will discuss in just a bit. Now, we do see this parallel. There is a parallel with the three Old Testament pilgrim feasts and the three major feasts of the church year. So just as Passover, which in Hebrew is Pesach, commemorated the redemption from Egypt by God's mighty hand and the passing over of the angel of death by the blood of a lamb. So Easter, which in Greek is Pascha. So it's basically the same word, right? it's it's really the same word there, commemorates our redemption from sin by God's mighty hand when we were spared from spiritual death by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Israelites passed from death to life in the Red Sea, and so we pass from death to life in the waters of baptism when we're made partakers of Jesus' resurrection. And then regarding the Feast of Tabernacles, just as Tabernacles commemorates the Israelites dwelling in those temporary dwelling, those tabernacles, during their time in the wilderness, so Christmas celebrates the Word made flesh tabernacling with us during his incarnation. Uh, In John 1, when it says he dwelt among us, it says he tabernacled with us. There's a parallel there. Now, the Old Testament Feast of Weeks And the Christian celebration of Pentecost also have some profound parallels. So the Feast of Weeks, weeks in Hebrew is Shavuot, that's where we get the name Feast of Weeks, was to be celebrated seven weeks and one day after the Sabbath of the Passover. That is, it was 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover. This is where the Greek name for the feast, Pentecost, comes from. Pentecost refers to the 50 days, that's where the Greek comes from. Shavuot refers to the weeks, that's where the Hebrew comes from. In the Old Testament itself, Pentecost was a celebration of the wheat harvest, a major harvest for the Israelites, a foreshadowing of the harvest of souls that would happen in Acts chapter 2, when later on in our passage we see 3,000 men, not counting the women and children, they repented, they were baptized, they came to faith in Christ. Um, if you have one of those Bibles where they give you kind of little subheadings that are not in the text itself, but they kind of help you navigate the text a little bit, you might see before in, Ex- in Leviticus chapter 23, before the heading about Pentecost, about the Feast of Weeks, there's a little tiny paragraph in many of these um, that talks about the, the, the Feast of first fruits. That concept of first fruits is not in that little paragraph. Whenever the Old Testament itself talks about the Feast of First Fruits, it's talking about Pentecost. Um, if, you, if you talk to a Jewish person today, you say, hey, we're going to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits on the Sabbath of Passover. They're like, what are you talking about? That's not till 50 days from now. I ha- I've had that conversation before. <laughs> That's why I know that. <laughs> now, so you see this, this first fruits of souls in Acts chapter 2 being a fulfillment of the first fruits in Pentecost in the Old Testament. Now, there was a later Jewish tradition which was firmly established by the time of the New Testament That that later Jewish tradition spoke of Pentecost as the time when Moses brought the law, the Ten Commandments, down from Mount Sinai to the people. That's why we recited the full Decalogue today, even though it's not the first Sunday of the month. Our normal custom here at All Saints is we do the Decalogue on the first Sunday. Well, it seemed appropriate to do it today in light of that celebration of Pentecost. The giving of the law is a foreshadowing of the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. You'll notice how the Holy Spirit caused the gospel to be heard in each person's native tongue. Now, all of those people there, if they were pilgrims, they probably were functionally able to work in Greek because everybody did in those days. Like today, everybody speaks English if you're an international traveler, right? And probably they spoke enough Hebrew to get by because they were there worshiping in the temple and you really couldn't do that well if you didn't speak the language. Um, This happens sometimes like today in in Greek Orthodox churches or once upon a time in the Roman Catholic Church. Everybody spoke a little bit of Latin if you were Catholic once upon a time. Everybody who's a Greek Orthodox speaks a little bit of Greek. So they probably knew a little bit of Greek in in Hebrew or Aramaic, all those pilgrims. But... The Holy Spirit brings the gospel to them in their mother tongue, in the language of their heart, the language they think in, the language they dream in. You'll also notice how the Holy Spirit um, used the word of God as preached by the apostles to bring repentance and faith to those Jewish pilgrims. The rabbis taught that it was at the first feast of weeks when God gave the law to his people that the covenant between God and the Israelites was established. The covenant was set on Pentecost, is what the rabbis taught. In a similar way, at the first New Testament Pentecost, the promise of the new covenant was fulfilled and established. Consider these words from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward part and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Now the problem with the old covenant was that the law was external. It was not written on their hearts. Though the law was and is perfect and good, It had not yet been written on the hearts of God's people. And so they consistently broke faith with God, disregarded the law, and followed the sinful and fallen inclinations of their own hearts. I'm in the middle of 1 Kings uh, in my own private devotions right now. And if you've read through Kings, you'll remember every king of Israelite was evil. Every one of them followed their own hearts and would not follow God. And some of the kings of Judah were pretty good, but even those guys, they did not follow the Lord with their whole heart, it always says, right? They were not like David, their father. Summarizing a key teaching of our Anglican formularies, Cranmer scholar Ashley Knoll wrote, What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The failures of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament are are a perfect illustration of this truth. But with the giving of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost, the law is indeed written on our hearts. No longer is it merely an external witness, really a witness against us. (laughs) I mean, the law still does witness against us. But with the giving of the Holy Ghost, God changes us from the inside out. It becomes an internal witness. He makes his word known to us in a supernatural way as the Holy Spirit speaks to us and shines his light on each one of us. The Lord changes our wills and our minds by changing what our heart loves. So when we look at today's gospel, we see Jesus explaining this ministry of the Holy Ghost to the disciples. John 14, 15. uh, John 14, beginning at the 15th verse. You can find this on page 181 in the prayer book or page 847 in your pew Bible. Jesus said unto his disciples, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So notice how Jesus ties the coming of the Holy Spirit to several key aspects. First, we have, it's tied to loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. And second, this idea of comfort. And then third, God indwelling or abiding his people. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead our hearts to love Jesus. And because of that love, to obey Jesus' commands. This is exactly the kind of thing that the prophet Jeremiah predicted. God changes our hearts so that we will love the Lord, which then leads to us keeping God's law. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus anchored doing the works of Jesus to belief in him. In the next chapter, part of this same speech, Jesus talks about the new commandment to love one another. He gives this new commandment. So the Holy Spirit enables belief in Jesus, love for Jesus, love for each other, and as we say in the liturgy, all such good works as God hath prepared for us to walk in. Now Jesus also speaks in our passage of the Holy Spirit as the comforter and promises that he will not leave us comfortless. The title comforter in our King James and in the prayer book is often translated as helper or advocate in in other English versions. Sometimes in some versions, they just simply transliterate the title as paraclete, basically bringing the Greek on over into the English because there's such a wide range of meaning to that word um, as it's used in Greek. But the idea here, based on kind of the the best linguistics scholars (laughs) is that the Holy Spirit is a mediator or an intercessor for us. In short, he has your back. That's the point of the Holy Spirit being called the paraclete, the comforter. So the comfort provided by the Holy Spirit is not merely therapeutic. It's not just there to make you feel better. But it's a comfort of advocacy, working on your behalf. That at the end of the paragraph, when Jesus says that he will not leave the disciples comfortless, the Greek word there is orphan. I mean, the, the, the Greek word, our word orphan comes straight from that Greek word orphan. Because the Holy Spirit is your comforter, you are not left alone. God is always with you because the Holy Spirit indwells you. This then leads, of course, to the third aspect of these verses. The Holy Spirit dwells with the Christian and he dwells in the Christian. St. Paul speaks of our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is ever present with us because the Holy Spirit abides with us, dwells with us and dwells in us. You'll remember last week that Deacon John mentioned that with the Ascension, our Lord Jesus is no longer physically with us. He's he's gone to the Father. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit brings Jesus to us spiritually through the Word, through the sacrament, and through each other. As Jesus says later on in the passage, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And all of this happens because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The other side of this truth is that the world does not have the Holy Spirit. He's come to the church, to the body of Christ, to Christians. And that means that when someone comes out of the world, when someone comes to Christ, when someone is brought into the church, they are brought by the Holy Spirit. Let's pick up in verse 23 of our gospel. We're going to skip ahead a few verses. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So again, we see Jesus connecting love for him, keeping of his words, and God abiding with the Christian. But we also see the ministry of the Holy Ghost in bringing Jesus' teachings to remembrance. So, on the one hand, this speaks to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in inspiring Scripture as the Word of God. You know, we recite in the Creed every week that the Holy Ghost is the one who spake by the prophets. So, in the Old Testament, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Moses, through David, through the prophets, and everybody else that gives us our Old Testament Scriptures. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit brings Jesus' teaching back to the apostles, which eventually leads to the composing of our New Testament scriptures. You remember in the Gospels themselves, the apostles are usually pretty clueless. But by with the coming of the Holy Spirit, now they get it. And, and the Holy Spirit brings all of that stuff back to them so that we can have our New Testament scriptures. Now, on the other hand... The Holy Spirit bringing all these things to remembrance speaks to the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in bringing God's word to mind, bringing it back to us, to you and I. How often when we're tempted to sin, is there this little voice that reminds us of what God's word says? How often when we're in a difficult situation, does the Holy Spirit remind us of how God's word addresses and informs the issue? How often does the Holy Spirit orchestrate the events of life to bring about an outcome that can only be described as a God thing? This also tells us that when God is truly speaking to us, it will always align with the scriptures. So whether... We're talking about a supposed prophecy or some other word from the Lord or whether it's Christians thinking that the spirit is leading the church in a new direction. If something is not in accordance with God's word as found in the Holy Scriptures, it is not the Holy Spirit speaking. Beware voices that are masquerading as the Holy Spirit. Remember St. Paul's warning that Satan can appear as an angel of light. God's word doesn't change. God's word is the norm that norms all other norms. And one day I'm going to learn the Latin for that phrase, which is really fun. (laughs) The buck stops with God's word. Why? Because it's through God's word that the Holy Spirit definitively speaks. And this in turn leads to the peace that Jesus promises in our gospel. It's not a worldly peace that is based on our own sense of control. Rather, it is a godly peace that is based on the knowledge that God is indeed involved, that he has indeed spoken, that we can know definitively his will and his pleasure. We're not left alone stumbling about in the dark. You don't have to obsess over what is God's will for my life. It's right here. It's right here. (laughs) All those little details that we think of as what is God's will, that's usually not a big deal. Just use the wisdom that God's given you, right? There's a, there's a meme that pops up from time to time in my Facebook feed of a, of a man praying at breakfast or something in his Bibles on the other side of the table. And it's like, um, you know, a headline, man searches for God's will while the Bible is three feet away from him. <laughs> <laughs> God spoke. We have it. We don't have to worry about that stuff. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit leading us into truth, teaching our hearts, shaping our affections, and bringing us holy comfort and holy rejoicing. And if that's not a good word on Pentecost, I don't know what is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.